Welcome to the Living Well Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hennick. As the months wear on well into the COVID-19 pandemic now, we've been encountering stressors like we've never encountered before. And I think nobody has experienced more stress over the last several months, and especially now that we're all so exhausted, than frontline workers. Today, I'm going to talk with Dr. Brian Goldman. You probably know Dr. Goldman from his show on CBC, White Coat, Black Art. But Dr. Goldman is also a frontline physician himself in the emergency room at Mount Sinai Health System in Toronto. Before I get to that, though, I'm going to talk to Dr. Jesse Gold. Dr. Gold is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University, and she specializes in college mental health, medical education, and physician wellness. I chatted with her about how it's becoming increasingly apparent that frontline healthcare workers are physically and mentally at risk. Yeah, it's been a really hard time for them. You know, I think right at the beginning, there was a lot of adrenaline. And I think we could just kind of focus on what the work is in front of them and what they're doing for their job and trying to do as best as we can. And we don't like to talk about emotions as healthcare workers. So we just like to go to work, do our job, help people and not think about ourselves at all, right? And I think that's possible to do until the work becomes harder and harder and the work becomes more and more different than we're used to seeing and people become sicker and sicker than we're used to seeing. And we are more at risk than we are used to, right? So all of those things are different about COVID. We never would go to work and worry about getting sick ourselves or dying ourselves. We never would worry about bringing that home and infecting our families. We never would really go into work and say, am I prepared and do I have the right equipment to go to work? That's not something you think about as a healthcare worker. You always feel like you must have enough equipment. You also wouldn't worry like, do patients have the right equipment? Am I going to be able to give my patients a ventilator? Are we going to have enough rooms for people? These aren't things we've ever really thought about. And the more people that get sick, the more people who would show up, the more these things would come into our heads and the more we would be dealing with them and the harder it is to forget that and the harder it is to put that off and say, I'm just dealing with the adrenaline. I'm just dealing with work, right? And so we bring that home every day and that leads to anxiety, that leads to insomnia, that leads to trauma, to be completely honest. And the harder the harder the day-to-day work becomes and the longer that goes on, the more trauma you're exposed to And I think will lead to depression over time. We have some studies that suggest that's happening. I think will lead to some PTSD over time. I think will lead to substance use over time. And the longer this goes on and kind of these waves of it coming and going and people having these tiny little respites of like, maybe it'll get better and maybe I'll be able to take a break and sleep and not have to be the person saving everybody and helping everybody And then going right back to the same thing, but the sort of universe that it's in changes, like people aren't clapping anymore. I think that makes a difference too. Dr. Brian Goldman says the mental trauma is leading to higher levels of burnout among frontline staff, and it can be worse depending on where they're working. If you're talking about about hotspots like Brampton and Peel, uh, I'd be surprised if they aren't. Uh, you know, suffering from 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 burnout. Uh, you know, they may be uh, suffering from some of the risk factors they may have experienced. For instance, compassion fatigue, 
which is, you know, it's also known as secondary trauma, that that the more that you've been you, you've been exposed to families that are suddenly uh, in a in a in a state of grief because of COVID-19, because of uh, uh, because of a loss, maybe even multiple losses in their families, the more you become numb to that. So that that's one thing. Or they may be experiencing something called moral distress, uh, where rules, conventions, regulations, other monetary encumbrances keep them from being able to care for patients in a way that their heart says that they should. And they're feeling a sense of distress about that. Both of those are risk factors for burnout, burnout uh, uh, causing, uh, uh, you know, symptoms like um, uh, kind of unreality where you feel you, you, or depersonalization, um, a sense of futility that, that, you know, if you start hearing people or you start watching people who walk to the resuscitation room instead of running to the resuscitation room, starting to say things like nothing I ever do makes a difference, then they're probably in, in the stage of burnout. I'd be, and we know a lot about burnout in healthcare professionals. I'd be very surprised uh, if there aren't healthcare professionals who are either burned out or burning out as we speak. It well, isn't everywhere. You know, at Sinai Health System, I, I, I've seen a kind of a joie de vivre. I've, I've, I've experienced a kind of, uh, you know, people seem to be excited about learning new things and applying them. Uh, but maybe that's because they just haven't seen a lot of patients with COVID-19 compared to some of the other hotspots. Now, you've talked about this before. It's part of the job of any healthcare provider to deal with death. In the current circumstance, how much of their burnout is being reinforced by the fact that this virus is killing a lot of people every day and there's nothing they can do about it? Yeah, you know, Mark, I think I think you're right. And I would add to that um, you know, you like think about like every person who dies has a story, a life story. Their families have a life story. Their friends have a life story. And, and it's all interconnected. Um, think again about all of the effort that goes into successfully treating a patient so they can go from death's door in the intensive care unit, perhaps on ECMO to being taken off ECMO, to being taken off a ventilator. And, you know, you've seen those long, those videos of the long line of applauding healthcare providers as they leave. All that effort that goes into one patient. Um, think about, and, and all of that, all of that mental, emotional, and physical and monetary effort that went, and professional effort that went into saving that one patient. Think of all of that effort going into um, not saving somebody else and another one and another one and another one and another one after that. Um, you know, in the United States, they're losing a thousand people a day. You, you know, you, so now what you're doing is you're multiplying that number by 10, by 100, by 1,000. And, and it's no wonder that people would experience a sense of depersonalization. You know, though, like, you know, our brains are hardwired to connect to patients and families one at a time not a thousand at a time or 10 or 20 at a time. When you do that, uh, then, then you cut people off emotionally. Like our brain architecture is, is designed to kind of dismiss um, a thousand people. Uh, you might remember that, that image, I talked about it in the, in the Power of Kindness, that, that photo of Ilan uh, Kurdi, the little boy whose body uh, was there on the beach. He looked like he was he was asleep, and he'd wake up from an afternoon nap. And people connected to that, and 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 contributed. Um, you know, it's it's been argued that if there were a hundred bodies like that, if the shot was wider, and there were a, a photo of a hundred bodies like that, that 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 our brains would not be kind of hardwired to connect to that 
distress, even though it's magnified times a hundred. So, so, so yeah, I, you know, I actually think we're hard, like the sheer scale of this puts us at risk of not, of, of disengaging from it. And now I'm not just talking about healthcare providers. I'm talking about the, the general public. Now, you know, to what degree uh, does medical training prepare new physicians uh, to deal with death? I would assume that to a certain degree, you know, doing the work that you do, it's expected. Uh, now, eventually you pass a threshold where it's every single day, one after another. So to what degree is a certain level of armor uh, healthy among physicians? And then when does it surpass that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're prepared to some extent, right? Like we all do these rotations where we see it and we get used to it and we talk about it. We talk about how to talk to someone about dying. We talk about how to talk to someone about what their diagnosis is and what that means. We watch our attendings do it. We see it modeled. We see these family meetings with people after their their loved one has died. And we see that over and over. And maybe we don't lead it right away. And we lead it after when we're older. We sort of see it go on. More specialties do it more often than others, right? So palliative care, you would do it all the time. Medicine, you would see it a lot more often. And I think some specialties don't do it often at all, right? And so those groups that kind of get pulled into frontline work in the pandemic who had not been seeing death for a very long time, that's a lot harder. But we get used to it to some extent. Like if you see it all the time and you're in these specialties that see it all the time, you can get, numb's the wrong word, but you can get accustomed to it being part of your job and you don't take it on as much. You can say, this is part of what I see. There's a course to things. And I'm here to help people and help the families through this. And I'm here to support as best as I can and do what I did and do the best that I can. And I think you can tell yourself that. But I think if it happens over and over in a shift and there's so much of it and you don't have time to sit with that and the families aren't there and you're having to really act as the family member and or like call the family member on the phone while the person's dying, which is very different than usual. That's a very different emotional experience of death than I think we were trained in. And that becomes really hard to pretend that it didn't happen or it becomes hard to pretend that we're not a part of that narrative or the story. And it becomes harder to say, I wasn't there when it happened, or I was just the doctor in that scenario. Like you were holding, you were there as the family member, really. And it's just really, it's been really hard for people, I think. And so we're prepared, but not as prepared. And these specialties that I think get called into the front lines that weren't at all prepared. Like if you're in pathology, you've just been seeing dead bodies, but not having the conversations. And if you got asked to do frontline work because we don't have enough medicine people or whatever, like in New York, when that was happening, you haven't had those conversations for years, maybe years and years, depending on what you're doing. And you are not used to it at all. Well, and especially the hours and the shifts, I think. So, I mean, that raises a good point for you as a psychiatrist working with health healthcare providers. Um, are physicians allowed to grieve in the same way that other people grieve? No, I don't think so. I think we struggle with where our place is in the narrative. Like, we're not a family member. We aren't directly related to the person. We didn't know them, really. And we might have just met them. 
we might have known them for a while if they were in the hospital for a while, but I think we struggle with what our ability to say, like, where we're allowed to feel, because we can feel to say we did the best we can and we tried really hard and I emotionally reacted. I really like that person. It's really hard to lose them. And we grieve in this like distanced way. But I think we feel if once we put ourselves in the story, we don't want to feel like we're taking away from the family's response or putting it more like centering it more on ourselves because we don't think we deserve that. And I think it's right in some capacity, right? Like we're not the family, but then what are we? And if we distance ourselves so much from it and say we don't deserve to care or we have no right to feel about a story where it was painful and we saw it and it was hard or we heard about it and saw it and it was hard or it was a kid and that was even just just seeing it was hard, then what are we supposed to do with actually processing that? Mm-hmm. So what uh, what do physicians do? I mean, do you receive any training in uh, letting go and moving on or do they bury it down inside? I'd say most people bury it. So I think people that don't are probably stronger people and people who see therapists and, you know, have outlets and feel like they're able to process the grief and process what they're seeing. Um probably have healthier coping mechanisms, for lack of a better word. Um, But most people, you know, go to sleep and move on, go run and move on, you know, maybe talk to a friend and move on. But it don't really ever let those feelings surface until they pile up and pile up until they're a lot of feelings. And that's why we have a lot of crises, to be honest, when people don't get care and a prevention for anxiety and depression in physicians. It's why we have high suicide rates in physicians, I think, you know, minus the stigma and the not getting care early. But I think if you don't feel like you can acknowledge those as feelings, because you're not part of the narrative, or you're not a person, you're just a caregiver, or you don't deserve to have those feelings, when they come, what do you do with them? You say, like, I can do this. I can move on. Like, I can keep going. You can't, you can't be there. Like, I can do my work. And you can, for the most part, do your work. And until it affects work or your relationships or something, then it matters. I'm very concerned about, about that, that kind of, uh, uh, you know, culture of silence, uh, of, of, you know, not feeling comfortable talking about human frailty, um, kind of a Superman, Superwoman complex. So have you noticed a difference in uh, late career physicians uh, who've been doing this for a long time, maybe are either battle hardened or battle wearied, uh, whichever it is, uh, and a younger crop of people coming in through med schools? You know, is, a, is there a demographic difference in how physicians deal with uh, the trauma that they're experiencing on the front lines? I think there's a desire to talk more about emotions and to care more about what it means to be a physician and what it means to have emotions. I don't think that's true about everyone. And I think we still beat it out of people in training. And But I do believe in a lot of ways that there's more of a push to say burnout is a thing. Depression is a thing. Anxiety is a thing. Why do we train like this? Why do we tell people we don't talk about this? Why don't we sleep? 
Why do we treat people like this? Um, and they, and the younger generation talks more about it and pushes back more and says, you know, you're not going to get away with these conversations being just a lecture. Like we need to change the culture because you can't tell me like burnout goes away by giving me a lecture on burnout. Like that's, that's lip service to this. And the younger generation pushes back on that because they see the numbers and they see their friends and they worry and they know what emotions feel like. And they've talked about it more in college because it was more open in college when they were in college too. And maybe they had treatment in college and that was different, you know, and they're coming into med school already on medication or already having seen a therapist and they're trying to figure out how to consistently maintain their mental health when they had more time in college, they have less time in med school and even less time in residency, right? And they're like, what do you want me to do? We have to be more open about this, like help me, right? And so we have to learn to build a better structure to help people be more open, but also protect them when they want to be. Because the way it stands right now, there's still a group that thinks it's super taboo to talk about it. There's still repercussions for talking about it to licensing. And unless we have changed a lot of that, we can't let these kids who come in bright-eyed, bushy-tailed and saying, mental health matters, like how I feel matters, why I pick these specialties, because I actually care about them and my own mental health within this equation matters. Like maybe I actually picked dermatology, not because it was easy, but because work-life balance matters, right? Like it's not easy, it's work-life balance. That's a different framing, right? And we need to say like, we agree and we need to fight with you as opposed to like, we're gonna beat this out of you until you don't think like this anymore. You know, we have rising rates of, of depression, anxiety, and, and, and thoughts of self-harm among our our youngest you know doctors to be medical students residents and and you know the 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 institutional or the cultural response to these to these incidents is to sweep them under the rug uh, to to say we have counselors standing by you know if you have any distress um, we would like you to come forward when everybody knows darn well that if you out yourself as having mental distress um, they're going to put you on a watch list whether they say it or not uh, you know they you know if you're on the job they might not get rid of you but uh, they won't hire you and you know I, I was just talking about I was just talking about 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 go, you know the interview season. Where where senior medical students are applying for residencies, I, I I think some of them would rather die than admit that they have depression and that they've been treated for depression because because they know darn well they're not going to be treated well. And how do they know darn well? Because nobody talks about it. When we come back, doctors Goldman and Gold offer some insights on how the system needs to change and reflect on the positives that have been highlighted during the COVID pandemic. The Living Well Podcast is brought to you by WellCan, a free mental health and well-being resource offered by Morneau Chappelle. At wellcan.ca and on the WellCan app in the App Store, you'll find information, assessments, and resources to support your mental health. 
Wellcan resources are supplied by Morneau Chappelle's expert clinicians, as well as through partnerships with some of the biggest companies from across Canada and around the world. And now back to the Living Well podcast and your host, Mark Hennick. Dr. Brian Goldman says the system needs to do some self-healing, which will go a long way to supporting frontline workers. All of us, each of us, uh, cannot bring it every day all the time. We're human. Uh, to, to be empathic and kind is to make choices. Um, you have to leave some leftover for, your, for yourself and for your family and, and, and your close friends and associates. If you don't do that, uh, then, then you're going to be at risk of, of burning out. Uh, you know, we want health, frontline healthcare workers to be, to be uh, gifted, to be generous. We don't want them to be martyrs. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I think, I think that, that, uh, you know, we, I think, I think that, that, um, we need to realize that, that, um, it's, it's, you know, the, the decision to be empathic or, or kind, uh, in a situation to go all in, as you've talked about it is a choice. And we're constantly weighing these choices. We can't beat ourselves up when, when uh, we realize that we're getting we're getting in too far. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that the that when we have experiences that are traumatic for us, we need an opportunity to debrief. We need an opportunity to 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 to, to reflect on on what's happened, and uh, that doesn't always happen. The other thing we need to to have is we need to 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 as much as possible turn the thermostat of stress down in in the work that we do and i don't think we do a very good job of that i i think that that uh you know i i, I think that that in healthcare we tend to pay lip service to reducing stress on uh, on frontline workers but there are little opportunities every day uh, you know to to understand to, to 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 walk in our shoes and to and to say you know what you got a lot of stress doing uh, X, Y, and Z. We're going to take A, B, and C off your off your list of things to do. But we don't do that. We tend to have this this complex hero complex that says, "Suck it up." Another, it's one more thing. Ah, it's just one more thing. It's one more thing I can do. It. It's one more thing. And nobody ever says, "You know what? Let's take a few of those one more things off the table because you've got enough on your plate right now." And finally, Doctor Gold, where do you find hope in all this? I find hope in a lot of things. I think. One being nobody talked about mental health of healthcare workers until now. You know, it was a problem long before. We talked about it in our little circles and we talked about it in these like academic communities and would push and push and say, we need change. These are things that need to change. But people weren't investing in it and people weren't talking about it in the press and people weren't talking about it in grand, grand ways, right? And I think this situation, if anything, there's some hope in that it has drawn attention to the fact that this is a hard job and it affects us emotionally. And it both makes healthcare providers aware that that is valid and true and normal and makes institutions aware that they need to start investing in caring about this. And in the for the long haul, not just as a Band-Aid fix because they noticed some people were sad right now, but for the fact that when the pandemic ends, that's when this is all going to come down on people for years. And I think they need to realize that and invest in that. And that investment has never occurred. So that's a hope for me. 
I also find hope in the people that I know. You know, the people I see as patients, the people I have as friends that continue to do this work, even though it's hard, you know, I I greatly value what I learn from them, what I hear from them, the strength that they have, the strength of character that they have, the fact that they get up every morning and still want to help people, even though, you know, people say they're profiting off of it or, you know, they wake up and the rates are still going up or people refuse to wear masks or, you know, there are so many things against them. But every day they say like, I'm here to help people and I'm going to keep helping people. And they're such good people. And it's hard not to find hope in that. And even though it affects them and it should because they're human. And in a lot of ways, that's my job to point out, right, is to remind them that they're human and allow them to be human and encourage them to normalize that, say that out loud and be okay with that. They're still just wonderful people. And that's something that I see all the time and I'm hopeful about. I'd like to thank Dr. Brian Goldman from uh, White Coat Blackguard on the CBC and an emergency room physician here in Toronto where we record. Also, thank you so much to Dr. Jessie Gold. Uh, she's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University. It's so valuable to hear uh, frontline voices in this episode the, in which we're considering frontline trauma. Uh, you know, as, as we approach the holiday season, I think it's now more important than ever to remind those uh, who, who we know who work in frontline healthcare how grateful we are for the work that they do. We couldn't be doing this without them, and they truly do save lives. So thank you so much for listening to the Living Well podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Mark Hennick. You've been listening to the Living Well podcast. Mark Hennick is our host and executive producer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show. There's no cost involved. You just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating to let us know how we're doing. For more information about the show and the WellCan project, visit wellcan.ca. The Living Well podcast is produced for Morneau Chappelle by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford.